I'm going to be reading this morning here from the Gospel of John, this, this ancient account of the life of Jesus. As, as the, uh, the, the author, John, reflects back on who was this Jesus and what difference did his life make. And so I invite you to join with me as I read from John chapter 12, starting in the second part of verse 36. And when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of God been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because his, he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we consider uh, the thoughts and the minds, the hearts and the actions of those who heard you first, of who saw you in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, and as they wrestled with what is true, what is beautiful, what is Noteworthy, Lord, what is glorious? God, I pray that our hearts would likewise wrestle to see you. Lord, that our hearts would wrestle not to be left in darkness, but to find light by your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, I uh, told the story of a road trip, so I thought I'd tell another. But this is actually a story of how... I nearly ruined uh, Whitney and I's first road trip. We were uh, fairly newly married, and we were we were heading out to the East Coast uh, to go spend some time with family. But we we took a meandering route to go visit some friends, and and it left us spending a night in Asheville, North Carolina, a beautiful little town. If you've been there before, and and we sat there in a in a coffee shop with our our new little infant uh, daughter as we uh, were just relaxing there at the shop. All of a sudden, Whitney looked at me and she said, did you just see that? Did you see, did you just see that guy? That, that, that somebody is famous. He's famous. I, uh, and I was like, wait, that guy, the guy who's leaving right now? 
that is totally not a famous guy, okay? And she was like, no, 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 he is, he is, he's an actor. I, and I was like, well, so what, what has he been an actor in? And she said, I don't know. And I was like, right, right, yeah, yeah, sure, he's supposed to be a, a famous guy. And, and maybe you can sense where this is going. She was, uh, she was like, no. Believe me, I, I just saw him. I know that he's famous. I can't remember his name. I can't remember what he's in, but I know he's famous. Didn't you see him? And I said, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And you can imagine that Whitney's frustration with me, right? Because maybe you've been there before. You've been in a situation where you've said, I just saw something noteworthy. I just saw something special. I saw something that should, should be noted and noteworthy, and you look to the person next to you for affirmation, but instead I looked at her like she was crazy. And I hadn't learned how to stop arguing at that point, so I kept the argument going, right? I was like, well, if he was famous, then surely you would know, recognize what he has been in, right? Maybe, are you sure he didn't just, like, look like somebody a little bit? Are you sure he didn't just make you think about something? And I felt the full weight of her frustration as I failed to validate this scene. A night that, uh, a frustration that left me in the proverbial doghouse on our first night in Asheville, uh, North Carolina. But we want the people around us to see what we see, right? They, we want the people around us to affirm what just noted to us, what happened to us, right? So if you have a, a really rude and obnoxious Uber driver, right, you, you talk to your best friend and you want them to sympathize and be like, that guy was totally out of bounds, right? When you see something surprising or ridiculous, you want your family to laugh at its sheer velocity. If you're uh, watching a game, right, and, and the, the ref blows a call or the judges give the dunk contest award to the wrong person, okay? Just happened last night for those of you who weren't watching. Uh, right? Like you, you want affirmation. Have you ever tried watching a sports game with the mute on? Like you see something happen and you're like, that is crazy. And, but, but like if you can't hear the audience booing, right? If you can't hear the announcers saying, boy, they missed that call, you get frustrated. You feel like, did I see what I think I just saw? We seek the affirmation of what we've seen. The Apostle John has been telling and weaving for us the story of the life of Jesus, and here he comes to the very end of a section, a section in which he has shown us seven miraculous signs that Jesus has done, signs, miracles that Jesus has done, which should have prompted everyone in the, within earsight to, to notice and to become aware of just who it was that we were talking, that Jesus really was the Son of God, that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament laws and, and prophecies, that he was the worker of divine miracles. Everyone who should have who saw him should have recognized his beauty and his majesty and his power, and yet they looked around for validation, and these Jews in the first century found silence instead. Or actually not silence, opposition. Refusal, no, he can't possibly 
be the Messiah. And so when John writes his story to the Jews of the first century, and he has to, he has to explain to them this important fact, why, if Jesus is who John claims him to be, the Son of God, the all-powerful Messiah, the creator of the universe, if that's Jesus, then why is no one else aware of what he is? Why is it that it's unbelief and not belief that wins the day? And I bring this up because I think many of us, as we read this, have had a similar experience, particularly in regards to Jesus, right? Like you have, have heard and you've been moved by the story of Jesus. You've heard that which proclaimed about him and in some seedling form, a, a flicker of, of uh, faith has been born. And yet, and yet you look around at the people next to you the people who hear the same things, the people who uh, have been told the same story, and you wonder, don't you get it? Are you not with me? Did I hear it right? Is this really what's good and true? Right? You, you, you have friends outside the church to whom the story of Jesus and the miracles that he's wo woven are, are absurd and hilarious. And as you say, I believe in this person of Jesus, you begin to feel uh, the absurdity of the claims. And you begin to doubt. You begin to question. You begin to, to wonder if, if they don't see it, then maybe I didn't see it. All right, you have friends outside the church to whom Jesus is, is an intolerant bigot. The way that he spoke, the things that he did, the laws that he commanded are, are so... Uh, against the flow of what is right and true and beautiful, that Jesus is uh, intolerant. Jesus is something not just to be ignored, but to be rejected. And in some way, as you sit there looking around at your peers, you look for the validation, but they offer you silence, nothing. Maybe it's even inside the church, right? You've, you've heard the story of Jesus, and you uh, believe in what it says, but you come into a gathered people, people who are all supposed to be on the same page as you, but the Jesus they describe doesn't sound like the Jesus you read. The way they live their lives doesn't seem to be any different from the way that other people live their lives. You wonder and you look, did you see what I just saw? Is it real? The lack of validation of those around us haunts us because it haunts uh, because we're terrified that maybe we got it wrong, that maybe this faith is invalidated, that the faith that we want to have is impossible, that maybe Jesus is not who he says he is. But John writes us this account. Because John wants us to know that Jesus is indeed worthy of your faith, even if it's a faith that you, that you experience in a very lonely fashion. That Jesus is uh, 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 worthy of your faith, even if those around you do not validate your experience of faith. That Jesus is indeed all the affirmation that you need. But he does it with a case study. A case study of those Jews who lived and saw Jesus first, the Jews who were the first to reject 
Jesus. And he's going to tell us, why is it? Why is it that they did not believe? And so we're going to look at three different reasons that I think this text shows us that they did not believe. And the first is simply this, that they did not believe because they could not believe. They did not believe because they could not believe. And some of you are scratching your heads going, what do you mean they couldn't believe? And what I'm saying is verse 39, it says, and therefore they could not believe. <laughs> they couldn't believe. And he quotes these, these obscure uh, sounding Old Testament references, these, these verses from the prophet Isaiah who had lived several hundred years before. And the, the prophet Isaiah is looking into the future and he's saying there is coming a time when there will be a servant who will suffer, a servant who will be rejected, a servant who will be ignored, a, a servant who will be beaten, right? A servant who will bring life to the people. And John uh, is saying, look, why are you confused that, there's, that no one is validating your faith when Isaiah has told you already what to expect? A suffering servant needs people who cause the suffering. A suffering servant is a person to be rejected. It does not matter, you see, that their rejection of the faith is not a statement of, of the quality of the faith, the quality of the truth, the quality of the person of Jesus. It is uh, an expression of what you, we would expect. It's because the scriptures from the beginning to the end have said that the one the Son of Man comes, he will not be received, but rejected. Even more so, though, he says uh, that there's a reason why they cannot believe, and that is that they have been blinded. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. You see, this is not a common garden variety of unbelief. That these people exist in a moment of judgment. The quote comes from Isaiah 6. This, this passage in the Old Testament where the prophet Isaiah sees the glory of God. And God says, who will go to the people and proclaim this truth? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. Maybe you've heard it before. And then Jesus goes on and says... Good, because when you go, uh, I will harden their hearts and I will deafen their ears and I will blind their eyes so that they can't believe what you say. You see, these people have been given a judgment. They've rejected God and now God has given them the sentence, the discipline, the judgment of unbelief. How does it work? What does it mean? Well, he tells the prophet Isaiah, go and preach. See, how is it that God hardens their heart is God continues to preach to them. God speaks to them about what is true and what is glorious, and it is the thing that drives them nuts. It's like a, 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 a match, right? If the flame of the match is, is doubt and, and the proclaiming of God's goodness is the, 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 the breath that blows out the, the, the wick, right? That blows out the candle or the match. The good news blows out the doubt. 
But that same breath, that same blow of air would kindle a fire to a campfire, right? When, you, when it goes down to the, the embers, you blow on it to bring it life. So the very thing that ought to have brought them life brought them death. The Jesus proclaiming who he was, Jesus showing them the signs of who he was, had the opposite effect of what it ought to have had. It's like in a, uh, in a battle, right? You can picture a scene in a movie where there's a parlay between two you know, medieval armies or something, right? And, and the kings meet in the, ar- in the middle, and, and one says to the other, I will show you mercy if you will just if you will just surrender, right? But instead of causing the other side to surrender, it inflames their hatred. It galvanizes their rejection that Jesus continues to preach to these people because in preaching it drives them away from the truth. Because God is showing them judgment, the judgment of his word. Jesus, later on here in verse 48, he uses this interesting turn. He says, I do not come to judge, but I come to bring a word. And that word, that word can bring life or it can drive into death. That the judge on the last day is the word which I have spoken. You see, the lack of faith, the rejection of faith, The rejection of faith is not something that is unknown or abnormal in God's world. It is the very means by which God is bringing his salvation. And that sounds really ridiculous. It sounds really obscure. But if it seems like God is is treating them unfairly, stay with me. If it seems like God is treating them unfairly because... It's worth pointing out here that in this next season, in this next section, John is showing us that that whatever sentence they've been given, whatever judgment God is showing them that keeps them from faith, it's a judgment that they would readily and heartily agree to themselves. Because they don't just believe, they did not not believe because they, uh, they could not believe. They did not believe because they did not want to believe. Verse 42, Jesus says, nevertheless, I mean, uh, John says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, John picks the best, uh, the, the best part of these Jewish leaders, those who 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 could not deny internally what they saw. People who, who looked at the life of Jesus and said, excuse me, there is something there. There's something real. There's, there's something that, that, that is really true, that maybe Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe Jesus is the Christ. And yet, when they say that, they shun it down. They hide it. Because John tells us they are afraid of what would happen to them if, what came out, if it came out. They're afraid of what would happen if they spoke it because they would be ostracized and rejected. They said it, they did not say it because they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. 
You see, they didn't believe because they didn't want to believe. They didn't believe in the active sense, not just the intellect, but they didn't believe in practice because they didn't want it. They didn't love Jesus. They loved the glory of this world. I think this is helpful for us on a, on a number of fronts. But one is that as we look around at our, at our peers, as we look around at our friends and family who are rejecting the faith, it is interesting to note the problem is not with the, an intellectual believability of the gospel. The problem is not that it is so absurd and obscure that it couldn't possibly be true. The problem is that they love something else. You see, many of us, when we're confronted with unbelief, we, we either start to feel it and internalize it. And the doubts of the absurdity of the gospel weigh on our hearts that we question ourselves. Or we tend towards another extreme to, to argue till we're red in the face that this must be true and this must be right because it's so obviously good. But, G, but John is pointing out something. They saw what was true, but their lo they loved something else. And so they, they, they were able to divide their, their hearts and their minds into two separate categories. They, they broke and they split what must be true about the world and what I'm going to do into two different pieces of their hearts and minds and souls. They paid lip service to one and followed the other, not because the story of Jesus was so ridiculous, not because it was so absurd, but because they loved the glory of man. They loved the being welcomed and accepted by men more than they loved the glory of God. Is that why we seek the affirmation of those around us? Is it a love of the glory of man that makes us have pause when we're told that the faith is absurd? Is it a love of man that causes us to doubt whether the stories of Jesus rising from the dead can be true? See, in a post-Enlightenment era, we like to think that, that everything exists between our ears, that we, our thinking somehow is abstracted from the things that we desire and the things that we want. But in fact, God made you as a whole person. And thus, if you love a good reputation, you will believe the things that make you lead to, towards a life you think will bring you a good reputation. If you love uh, to, to indulge yourself in sin, then your brain will accommodate that love in some form or fashion, whether it's logical or illogical, that we are driven not by whether the story of Jesus is believable, but by what we love. It's not that the logic of the gospel is incompatible with our minds, but the premise of the gospel is incompatible with what we want. And a pre-existing faith or love, a love of this world can be a blockade that stops us from seeing the message of Christ. So John is telling us that there's this group of people, this group of people who, while he... he this is John's fault, not mine. Okay, he uses the same word, that they believe in Jesus, but they don't actually believe. That they know about Jesus, but they don't 
actually follow him. Because he wants us to see in this text the possibility, the possibility that our doubts, the possibility that the torment we feel when our faith is not affirmed is not uh, in us or is not in, in who Jesus is, but it's in us. Because if you're looking to the world to bring you affirmation, to bring you validation that the stories of Jesus are true, you're looking in the wrong place because the world has its own agenda. Instead, he says, look to Jesus because he is all the affirmation we need. So he tells us that they did not believe uh, because they could not believe. He tells us that they did not believe because they didn't want to believe. But then third, he shows us that God is playing a, a longer game than what we had realized at first. That they did not believe in order that we might believe. At the end of this, as Jesus, as Jesus talks about the blinding of hearts, as Jesus talks uh, the hardening of hearts, the blinding of eyes... Uh, we begin to wonder, what is Jesus doing? What are you talking about, Jesus, that you would bring unbelief as discipline? Jesus, didn't what, what I thought your whole purpose was to come and to bring freedom, to come and bring belief, to come and, and bring healing. Jesus, what are you doing, we say, as we come to this passage? And Jesus says, I'm doing what I've always been doing. Verse 46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus, right before this passage, says to the, to, says to the people, um, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going, but while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Jesus, even as he brings the judgment of unbelief, is bringing it for the purpose that those who hear might believe. In a contradictory way, a way that is a mystery to us, he brings unbelief upon this generation that he might bring faith in the next. You see, the, the story, this whole passage is saturated in these ancient accounts of the people of Israel, people of Israel who saw whole generations walk away in unbelief, people, whole generations who saw what God did and rejected it. The people who saw what God did in Egypt as he brought them out were the same people who rejected him and thus walked in the desert. But yet, in some mysterious way, God is able to use their disbelief to bring belief in the generation of Joshua as they come into the land and renew the covenant. He is referring to the generation of people who has so rejected the cause of Christ that they have gone after and aligned themselves with, with Babylon, right? They've gone and, 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 and given themselves away in body, in worship, in a mind to other beliefs, and God brings upon them a judgment of being sent out from their nation, but he does it in part that we might see the generation of Ezra and Nehemiah. Jesus brought unbelief upon the Jews of Jesus' day that they would crucify him and make him suffer so that 
Jesus might raise again and bring life. John tells us this, this whole passage, uh, John is the writer of this story, right? And we're going, why did you even tell us this? Why are you putting this in here? Because John is convinced that when we look at the unbelief of the Jews of Jesus' day, that it would compel us towards belief. When we see the darkness in which they operate, that we would hunger and thirst for the light. Because John is telling us that the time is short. While you have the light, walk in the light. John is telling us that the implications are dire. Jesus repeatedly in this last section says, it's not I who act, but him who sent me who acts, right? It's not I who speak, but the one who sent me who speaks. Because you see, to, to, to ascribe darkness to Jesus is to miss the creator of the universe. To deny Jesus is to deny God the Father. To deny Jesus is to deny the glory of new life in him. And there is a there is a tendency in each and every one of us to trade the glory of the everlasting God, to trade the life that God promises to be full and whole, to trade that in for the glory of man, as he says in the previous verse. There is a tendency and a desire in each one of us when we see the crowd around us reject Jesus as being unbelievable to, to, to doubt and to question and to shirk back in fear. But God does not send us Jesus so that we would despair, not so that we would cower in fear of the opinion of others, but that we might be active in prayer, active in hope, active in the sight that Jesus is really who he says he is. You see, when you look at your peers and you you don't experience the validation of faith. There is a tendency uh, in each one of us to go on the defense, to go into retreat, to hide again. But what John is telling us in this passage is, is that when the faith in Jesus is not validated, it's quite the opposite. It's the motivation that pushes us out into the world to love and to demonstrate and to hope for the coming kingdom. Because the reality is, is that if you're looking for the world to confirm that Christ is good, you have already lost the game. Because Christ is all the validation we need. And that's true, right? Like if I was, uh, when Whitney and I looked at the famous person, it really doesn't matter if I validated her opinion. Right, The person who walked out, if he was indeed the famous person uh, that Whitney said he was, Right, it doesn't matter whether I validated her opinion or not. She could have gotten up from her seat and gone and shook his hand and found out the truth for herself. Right, It did not matter that she didn't have my validation if the truth was true regardless of, what, of my affirmation or my lack of affirmation. And many of us live this life constantly worried about the, the, the lack of validation or the, the judgment or the fears of those around us. 
as if that made a difference on if what Jesus said is good and true and right. Jesus tells us in this text, however unbelievable it might seem to you that what he is offering is the the very essence of God's word. So what he is offering is life, the fullness of life, that what he's offering is truth, the fullness of truth. And whether the person next to you nods their heads in agreement or looks with a scowl on their face, there is truth and there is life to be found and God presents it to us that we might walk in it. We do not need the affirmation of the people around us because Jesus is all the affirmation that we need. And so Jesus invites us that while you have the light, while you remain in this moment of hearing the note, the, the good news of Jesus, believe in the light, trust in the light, not just in your intellect, but in your whole body and being that you may become sons of the light because our hope in this life is not found in our neighbor but our hope is found in being united with christ pray with me god we uh, do not understand your ways god we do not understand what you are doing in the world god we do not understand why you bring judgment at times and bring forgiveness at others and yet god you are the God who tells us that you are working all things together. Lord, that you are working uh, according to a plan, Lord, that you are bringing us to our fullest and final conclusion in your kingdom. Father God, I pray that you would grant us faith to believe, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that we might know you as you really are. I pray this in Jesus' name.